Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Co-host Shannon Bond is still out on maternity leave, but we are joined once again by Mary Childs, the FT's U.S. financial correspondent. Mary, how are you? I'm great. How are you? You had a sparkling debut last week on Alpha Chat, I got to say. Thank you. But uh, you got quite a lot of feedback to your piece last week and to our discussion last week on hedge funds and some of the racist and misogynist comments that hedge fund managers had made at a recent conference. It sure did. It seems to have struck a bit of a nerve, or it's one of those things that if you say um, anything on the topic, everyone gets annoyed in general. You know how people kind of throw around the word provocative Mm -hmm. a lot? Mm -hmm. In this case, it was quite literally true. It provoked quite a response, not all of it necessarily pleasant. That's definitely true. Um, it was one of those things where writing it, um, I knew that I was going to get a lot of feedback. When I pitched the story, I I was sort of fed up with um, all the comments and the, the tone and um, this kind of extreme attitude of entitlement. And I don't know, it just everything sat very poorly with me. And I, I pitched the story sort of in, in the heat of that moment. And then everyone was like, yeah, definitely write that. And I got back to my desk and, you know, had a little bit of perspective and was like, oh, great. We're going to talk a little bit about this and we're going to address some of the specific points of feedback. But first, I want to ask you, like, how do you process it when there is a loud, vociferous, angry response to one of your stories? Because as journalists, it's something that we expect, but we all handle it differently. How do you handle it? That's such a great question. I process a lot of it just by internalizing it and trying to understand the person's perspective and, you know, why they might be mad, what they object to, if their objections have any, you know, merit. And sometimes certainly they do. And, you know, then I try to untangle if I went wrong somewhere or if, you know, they've misstepped in some way, um, just see where where I come down on, on whatever their feedback is. But yeah, it's one of those professions where you need a very thick skin. I had a friend who used to say, you know, I don't I don't think, you know, you fight every day with with, you know, PR people and your editors over stories and sources and like doesn't is is this really is it supposed to be this, you know, yeah. this contentious. And I was like, I you know, certainly I think we should not fight every day with editors and with colleagues and with whatever, but um but it is an adversarial profession in many ways because you are supposed to afflict the comfortable and you are supposed to, you know, be prodding people who otherwise don't necessarily get prodded that much. So yeah, it it, it certainly is. You you find yourself out on a limb, and you that's you know one of the comments on the story that that I just wrote was that Mary Childs has written this so carefully that it seems like she's afraid of the subjects. And I was like, well, it's not unfair. Right. <laughs> well, it's, it took me a while to learn how to emotionally distance myself from all the feedback, right? Because we're human beings. Absolutely. So you write something. It's really unhealthy to anticipate the feedback before you write anything, I think, because you don't want to be influenced by uh, any particular fear of Mm -hmm. what it might, of what the feedback might be or what kind of response it might provoke. But once the story's out there and you get it, then 
I used to respond quite angrily when I thought people were just being stupid. Yeah, absolutely. I had trouble just kind of distancing myself. And then whenever I would actually address a commenter directly, whenever I would respond to somebody who either emailed me or wrote something under a post, uh, I would try to pause for a little while to kind of gather my thoughts. And then I would try to use the the nearest available uh, heuristic, right, which is don't write anything about the name calling, right? Don't address the fact that this guy just called me an idiot or a, you know, or a jerk. Just address the issues, right? Definitely. Just look at the merits of what it is that he said. And if there are no merits, then either you don't respond at all and you just let it go uh, or you ban the person from ever commenting again if it's just strictly ad hom- <laughs> an ad hominem attack. I think you're right that um, that it is really hard to distance yourself and you do have to work towards having a bit of a thick skin and, and being able to process what they're saying without having that angry reaction or after having that angry reaction perhaps. But your earlier point about not thinking about the feedback you're going to get I sort of take a different view, and maybe this is wrong of me, but when I'm writing something- That's a little bit of negative feedback from yeah, you now. Yeah, Cardiff, right, I think right, you're wrong. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should have waited. Um, but when I'm writing a story and I find that it I find that it helps me to to run through it as if I'm the, the subject, and oftentimes you find that a word that I chose just because it's a nice sounding word or I like it or it just jumped in my head, there's no real justification for that word. If you were the subject, you would find that word horribly offensive. You would say, oh, I never I never intended it. There's some way that you could translate the word. And I've learned this after years of having accidentally offended a lot of people because I was like, oh, I just that was just a good word, I thought. And the person's like, you implied horrible things about me. And, you know, you have to think about that because – I think you have to think about that because there's a burden on you not to stray from the line. And I mean, this is an imperfect science, so it's something that I mess up every other day. But I try to scrub my articles and, and hit it right down the line. So Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. And it, it never hurts to try to be empathetic. Right? Yeah. When I say that I try not to worry too much about the feedback while I'm writing it, I mean that I don't want to hedge what I'm writing right. just based on the fact that someone might not like it. Somebody's right? going to get mad. Because yeah. then we're not doing our jobs. Yeah. Right? Our job is to find out what the truth is and then communicate it as best we can. Definitely. But anyways, uh, it's all a lot of fun and all very important. Um, so we are going to talk a lot about your article and about what people said. And we've got a lot of other stuff coming up on today's show. But first, quite a few housekeeping items, actually. But they're fun ones. They're really <laughs> fun ones. I'm excited. So first, for our listeners, if you want to attend FT Alphaville's annual festival, Camp Alphaville, it's in London on July 1st. It takes place at the beautiful Artillery Garden at the HAC. Part of it is outdoors, and it's just an immensely enjoyable way to hang out with people from the worlds of finance and economics, see panels, have a few drinks, talk to Mary, who's going to be in attendance, I just discovered, and Alpha Chat listeners get a discount. You can attend the conference for just £69. That's a total steal. It's an even better steal from the full price, which is itself a steal of £100. But go to ft.com forward slash finance festival and just type in the code secret alpha chat. That's all one word. It's all caps, secret alpha chat. When you register, again, the site is ft.com forward slash finance festival. Second, Over on our sister podcast, Alpha Chatterbox, you can now listen to my long-form interview with Maria Konnikova. She's a psychology writer over at The New Yorker. We talk about her approach to writing, some overlaps between psychology and economics, and we also talk about her new book on con artistry, which does feature some familiar and notorious figures in finance. It was such a fascinating chat about human behavior and human foibles, big and small. Go check it out on Alpha Chatterbox. And finally... 
A quick announcement that within the next few weeks, we will be merging the podcast feeds of both Alpha Chat and Alpha Chatterbox. You won't have to do anything if you're already an Alpha Chat subscriber. You'll just notice that once every couple of weeks, a long-form conversation will appear in your feed. We'll label it really clearly, but many listeners had requested this change, and we agreed that it was a good way to simplify things. That's it. That's all the housekeeping, and now let's get on with today's show. First up on today's show, Mary and I are going to continue our conversation on the responsibilities of hedge fund managers and others throughout the hedge fund industry to respond to some of the batter apples among their peers. And after that, last week, Mary and I spoke to Heather Boucher. She is the executive director and chief economist at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth about her new book called Finding Time, the Economics of Work-Life Conflict. It does focus on some issues in the United States. But they are also common to a lot of other countries throughout the developed world. Stick around. Lots of fun stuff today. Mary, now that we've established that we can respond to feedback, let's show everybody how good we are at it. Okay, I'm ready. Let's be graceful about it. Okay. I can try. Um, So after our conversation last week, you published this op-ed in the Financial Times, uh, essentially saying the same thing, right? That hedge fund managers have a responsibility to respond to some of the bad seeds among them. I said batter apples in the intro. I don't know. You know whatever. Yeah, I thought the, that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> so let's address some of the specific points of contention here, right? One commenter on Twitter said that some individual hedge fund managers don't really care about the activity that other hedge fund managers, um, you know, are showing off to the world in part because when it comes to raising money and to presenting themselves in front of investors, they're able to distance themselves without a problem. That they don't get uh, they don't get smeared by the actions of one hedge fund manager. What do you think? I think that's true to some extent, but I I mean that's sort of part of my argument is that it's a little short sighted. Those same hedge fund managers also may complain that they are being tarred by, you know, this broader image issue. And I'm saying this from my anecdotal experience where, you know, certainly I I know a lot of hedge fund managers who don't suck and who, you know, have really nuanced opinions about things and would be great spokesmen and advocates for the industry. But they choose, which is their choice, to, you know, sort of stay in the shadows and do their job, keep their head down. And that's a completely defensible position. My point was just that you know, it isn't a zero-sum trading game like they're used to because if they want their public perception to improve, which ostensibly they may because pensions are increasingly paying attention to this, pensions who fund them, you know, it it sort of does fall on them to take responsibility and step forward. Now, not everyone's a good spokesperson. Not everyone wants to do that. That's fine. But by leaving a vacuum, they're letting the louder voices kind of suck up all the oxygen. Yeah. And there's something a little bit unfortunate about this too, You said last week and you wrote in your column that this doesn't necessarily apply to most hedge fund managers, right? That there isn't necessarily a higher share of hedge fund managers that would make these kind of outrageous comments that you hear about in public so much. And so what ends up happening uh, is that that void gets filled by those comments and by those specific bad guy hedgies, right? Uh, And it seems like 
you're just kind of leaving something on the table by not commenting. Totally. And I think that, you know, Scaramucci in in the piece that I wrote, um, we spoke and he said that he didn't endorse um, some of the comments made at, at his conference. And he's just trying to create an open forum. And I think that is a fair point. But it's also fair that, you know, maybe putting forward all of the views all of the time. Again, I got a little bit of pushback in the comments for being a social justice warrior. So um, take this as you will. But <laughs> but I do think that if you're giving... Was that meant to be a smear? Uh, yes, I think so. <laughs> so um, what's wrong with being I, a social justice warrior? I mean, yeah, it seems clear cut to me to be like, humans are equal, but um, that's crazy. So I think that Scaramucci, you know, it's admirable to encourage free speech. But at the same time, I think it's, um, you know, if you are trying to help your industry move forward and not be perceived as a bunch of jerks that, you know, are out of touch and are, you know, too rich for their own good, yada, yada. And again, that's not my view. That's the kind of the tone that's arisen and not out of nowhere. Then I think you do have sort of a responsibility to maybe the word is curate. I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, a related bit of feedback uh, was that, This is a different standard than the standard that we apply to other industries. Mm -hmm. So um, we don't necessarily request that, uh, in the case of this commenter, that airline CEOs respond to every bad thing said by one of their peers. They just kind of go about their business, right? And the issue of whether or not a banking CEO would condemn similar comments from another banking CEO was also raised. What do you think? So in the aftermath of the crisis, I think banks had a major PR issue. You know, they were blamed for the crisis and taking bailouts and so on and so forth. And there were protests and a lot of that hasn't been mitigated even today. But I think they took that very seriously. And Jamie Dimon went to Washington and became besties with Obama. And Lloyd said they were doing God's work, which maybe didn't help them. But they had firm-wide meetings trying to figure out how better to present themselves and what not to say and, you know, what lines to toe. And I don't think it's an accident that some of the some of the ire towards banks has shifted. I think that, you know, certainly they've changed a lot of their behaviors, but also I think they did try to be more proactive about the image that they were projecting. Again, I just don't think that's like a high bar. Like I think that that is pretty basic that if you don't manage your own narrative, someone else will do it for you. Yeah. I, I guess my, my own response to it is maybe even simpler, which is just that those other industries don't have the public image problem that hedge funds do right now. So why not help your own cause, right? And this is all, by the way, separate just from the uh, more, I guess, naive, uh, corny response, which is that why not just do the right thing here? Is it so hard? Why not just do the right thing (laughs) here? If someone says something racist, be like, hey, man, that's not cool. (laughs) One other bit of feedback. We didn't Name any ethnic minority uh, fund managers. This was my failing. Um, I could not off the top of my head name any major firms managed by or founded by um, someone who is from an ethnic minority. And while I have come up with some, I am sort of uncomfortable naming them for the purposes of, you know, just racistly pointing out races. I don't know. That just doesn't seem to make it better. So please note that there are some. Um, they were out there and they're working very hard and they probably have great funds. So the end. Yeah. If you want their specific names, uh, email email Mary. Right. And then finally, this was great. Somebody wrote in to say that you got the definition of misogynist wrong. Yes. So that uh, means like hatred or ire towards women. And this friend asserted that it was more accurate to say sexist and inappropriate. Point taken. I think it's a little bit of a subjective point. Um, And I would posit that whatever it was an opinion column and therefore I'm entitled to take it maybe too far and call something misogynist. I didn't think it was taken too far. I thought the specific comments by Cooperman in particular, uh, and I'm not going to 
I'm not going to repeat them here. I think definitely crossed the line into misogyny. They were great. I, I, I don't even think it was. I don't even think that's all that controversial. Let's move on to the second segment of today's show. Having done our damnedest to respond to listeners last week, Mary, you and I spoke to Heather Boucher about work-life balance. Do you have any of that in your own life? No. No, okay, I don't. Good. <laughs> You don't even have time to answer the question fully. No, I just. Right? I That's just don't. how busy you yeah. are. Right. Okay. Uh, efficiency all the way. Okay. That I wouldn't call that efficiency. <laughs> <laughs> I think if I were efficient, I would actually have a little bit more balance. But you have to read all of the internet to know what's going on. I know. I I managed to pull it off by I'm not jealous. sleeping and having no personal life whatsoever. Exactly. Yeah. That's what's required. It's totally. If you, if you ever wonder why I mumble so much on this show, that's why. In all seriousness, this actually was a really interesting conversation. It was. Here it is. So first of all, thanks for talking to us. Oh, thank you. This is just a real treat. I want to start in 1971. Yes. Okay. Congress passes a bill that would have funded a lot of child care centers, many more than we had at the time. Uh, Richard Nixon, the president at the time, vetoes the bill. And you write about all of the fascinating but also quite regrettable socioeconomic implications of that veto and the trajectory afterwards uh, for work life in the U.S. Uh, why don't you start by taking us through it? Yeah. So um, this is one of the things that I didn't even know. Um, a, a few years into my career, I was thinking about these issues around work life. And then, you know, someday at some, at some point at a cocktail party or something, a friend of mine was like, did you know that we actually had this legislation around universal childcare in the 1970s? And I was like, what? It's sort of this hidden story that we don't talk about because you don't talk about bills that aren't actually signed into law. But so you had, you know, the House, the Senate voted to pass this comprehensive childcare plan and Nixon vetoes it. And in his veto, he he makes these comments that are about how, well, well, while that might be a good thing to have, we don't want to actually undermine women's role in the home, right? If the federal government steps in and provides child care, somehow that's going to change the course of history. And if we don't do this, then women will stay kind of where they belong. And um, the implication being that if women started going to work as they were starting to increasingly at the time that it would undermine the family. Exactly. And in fact, you know, what you were seeing even as early as the 1970s was this rise in women's labor force participation. And, you know, the 1960s was um, an era when you started to see that sort of start to ramp up, but that really ramped up over the 1970s, 80s, into the um, 1990s. Women's labor force participation peaked in the late 1990s in that full employment era we had um, back then and then, you know, 1998, 1999. So, so it's interesting because not having this child care um, support at the federal level didn't stop women from going into work. But what it did was created this crisis in homes all across America where you've got these families where you've got nobody at home um, to provide care for children. And also sort of we kind of have to keep in the back of our minds for elders as well as we've got this aging population. So it's important to just kind of note that there's an absence there of care. Um, so you've got these families who are all struggling with this problem, thinking it's their own problem, when in fact other countries and in fact some states have moved forward um, since then to to provide childcare, to provide the support, but we haven't done it here. And we and what I think is sort of remarkable is the fact that we don't talk about the fact that this this bill didn't become law. It's as though that is that hasn't been on the table, right? It's this collective forgetting that actually at one point in American history. Congress and the Senate wanted this to happen, and it was because of some, uh, you know, really ideological reasons that we didn't do it. 
Is there any kind of um, velocity now for this to change? I mean, you know, you, you cite that there's been stagnant wage growth and, and that the entrance of women to the workforce has helped kind of mediate that for some families out of necessity and just because it helps. Is there a moment at which, you know, it's been a long time since wages, real wages have increased. Does that mean that this will come back to the table? Well, I think that you're seeing um, the whole host of work-life issues right now are on the table. And it's actually this very exciting moment of policy change. Uh, there's a lot of policy areas where I think we've seen some, you know, reversion or there hasn't been a lot of excitement, but this is one where you've seen a lot of proactive movement. So both um, in the area of access to, to child care, but also a lot of states and cities have implemented universal pre-kindergarten programs is one one route that they've gone. I know that New York has done that. Washington, D.C. has done that. Um, very effectively, at least in D.C., you hear a lot of uh, professionals talking about how fantastic the D.C. program is. And that's an indicator of success when you've got, you know, all classes of folks who really want to opt into these programs. So they aren't something that you want to opt out of. They're something that you want to get into. Um, so you're seeing this movement around the country. Um, some of the first places to focus on universal pre-K were actually um, Georgia and Oklahoma. Um, so this is something that there's an opportunity for an across-the-aisle uh, red state, blue state kind of thing because it's so important for families and it's something that I think politicians are hearing more and more about, but also this host of other issues to help people deal with the fact that there's nobody at home, that families are squeezed for time around paid family leave, paid sick days, uh, predictable scheduling practices. So there's this whole host of, of um, uh, new policies out there in the States. Yeah, offering workers more flexibility is, I think, one of the ideas that you focus on the most. Can we talk about getting the incentives right for companies? Because I think most companies would see offering flexibility as a form of compensation and for them as a cost rather than as a longer term investment. What has to be done to convince them otherwise that it's in their own self-interest um, to offer some of these, I guess, some of these ideas? So it's a great question. You know, when you think about uh, workers' rights movements over time, one of the first things that they focused on was the right to have an eight-hour day, to have some control over our time. And it's really interesting to see the way that that's played out over the last century. So a lot of workers are covered by the overtime provisions, but most professionals, most salary workers aren't. We've just had the um, the Obama administration in, uh, uh, implement new regulations around overtime to cover more folks, but still many professionals um, and and many other workers remain outside of it. So that's one way we think about the scheduling issue. So we, I just wanted to start by noting we have these long-standing policies in place that that already are about schedules um, in terms of, of hours, and firms seem to do, you know, they cope with that. But the thing about scheduling flexibility and predictability is that on the one hand, there's a lot of micro evidence, um, firm case studies, uh, good business practices that you see time and time again that some firms do this because they see that it's good for their bottom line. And so a lot of firms that have that have thought about it or done studies on it are like, wow, actually, if I give my workers um, some opportunity to telecommute or to have their hours vary within some set limits, I actually get higher productivity. There's this one study that um, for me is just like it has this beautiful chart. So it's just so clear. Um, this public utility uh, had this this program that lasted over a number of years where um, and they had data before and after on productivity. So they implemented a flexible scheduling policy in year two. 
So they have data on productivity in year one, and they have two different um, two different offices or utility, whatever they are, right? So they've got two different places. So productivity in year one, it's the same in the two different um, parts of their organization it's in this public utility. Year two, one implements this scheduling of flexibility, productivity rises. Year three, they undo the program for some reason, and productivity goes back to being at the same as at the two entities. And that's like this very stark sort of like, wow, you implement some sort of um, flexibility, and it, it, it can improve productivity because people can focus. They can deal with all the other things they have to deal with in their life. They can deal with th- such mundane things as transportation, right? Um, you know, Right now in the District of Columbia, our subway system is having these rolling track repairs all summer, which means that half of my staff are, are trapped in their suburban homes without transportation. Well, if I said, okay, no flexibility, that would, that would be very unproductive. People would be coming in very late. They'd waste all this time on the train. Instead, We've just implemented a video conference policy. Work wherever you need to when you, you know, to deal with this track issue, but you have to video conference and all calls and everybody's got the technology. Totally effective. Boost productivity. So how do we convince every firm to do that? You can't go to every firm in America and kind of like show them this little study from this utility or show them case studies. But I think that the the government can play a real role in encouraging um, practices that push towards that. So encouraging things that we know that work, like scheduling predictability and like finding ways to ensure that employers and managers talk about the need for flexibility without the employee fearing for their job. In many parts of, well, in in almost every part of America, even asking your boss for flexibility could get you fired, right? Most of us are at-will employees. 90% of the private labor force is not covered by a union. Even asking could get you fired. So why not just say you have the right to have that conversation? That's like one small step that we could be doing that could encourage the conversation to find these win-win solutions. I would guess that some of that higher productivity is also the result of just retaining a more devoted workforce because they have those options, which also saves you money on retraining the new people you would otherwise have to hire. Exactly. And turnover costs are so high. Um, A number of years ago, uh, some colleagues and I did a a meta-analysis of every study, good study, that we could find on the cost of turnover. And we found that um, the cost to replace an employee across all these studies was about almost about 20%, between 16 and 20% across these studies. But what was really interesting about that is that that cost was about the same all the way up the wage spectrum, up to workers that made around $75,000, $80,000 a year. So the cost to replace that fast food worker about the same as it was to replace that line worker is about to, the cost of, to replace you know a worker making $60,000, $70,000 a year. So it's very expensive, um, and there's a lot of lost productivity there, so certainly. Are there pockets of industry that, that fare better or worse at this? I feel like in Silicon Valley, you know, Marissa Mayer had a, one of her first acts was to, to kill the telecommuting and the, you know, everyone actually had to be in the office and that was applauded and lauded. And then you have the Amazon stories from last year about how grueling that workplace is. So is it is it still in banking, for example, cool to be at your desk 20 hours a day? Or do you think that even in those industries and in some of these like more entrenched industries that will also start to change? Well, so the Marissa Maya story is really interesting because she came into Yahoo to try to turn over this this company that was not doing well and 
what she had discovered was that a lot of people were telecommuting, but they were working on their side projects, not actually working on their Yahoo projects. So in that case, that was sort of like, you know, this is all about management, right? I mean, especially if you're working in, in all the the um, sectors that you just mentioned are, are sectors where it's about an employee's imagination, talent, creativity, the work that you're getting out of their mind, not necessarily just punching something where you can like watch them on a shop floor or something. So how do you manage those kinds of employees um, to give you the best productivity and output? The evidence, I mean, you do see a lot of this in Silicon Valley the other way, where um, firms kind of realize that giving people the the flexibility to be more creative, to work at home if they want to, can boost um, productivity. But if that if you're not managing to to the mission and to the goals of the organization, then that doesn't work. So fundamentally, this is a management challenge. I will say though that you see this, you see that firms implement scheduling flexibility for workers that works for both the firm and the worker across a variety of different industries, and you do see that it works. And then the one thing, too, about overwork, um, I just uh, put out a report on this with a colleague of mine, Bridget Anzel, and one of the things that is just really clear in the literature is that, you know, humans... I don't know if you know this, but humans have a finite amount of energy each day. And what you see from the evidence over and over again is that really long hours actually don't lead to higher productivity. They may signal to your boss, oh, hey, I'm super dedicated, but that's also a that's that's not actually signaling that you're more productive. It's just signaling that you don't have a life. Um it's so it's not necessarily going to improve profits. And you know, in our in our study, we cite all of this different research evidence across a variety of industries that shows that it, it it can lead to more accidents, it can lead to more um, errors, you know, especially in things we have to deal with, you know, that are super important like nursing or doctors, but it also just doesn't lead to, to added productivity value. I love this point um, about how childcare isn't just about the people in the workforce right now, although it certainly is. It also means that 15 years later, when that child enters the workforce, then he or she will also be better educated and better prepared for the economy that exists then. So this is a policy that I think has kind of multiplicative effects. And America, we wrote the book on that, right? A hundred years ago, we, America, was the first to provide universal education, universal primary and secondary school. We were like, we need to, we need an educated population. And so much of it is because of our history as a country found by these pilgrims that believed in the importance of, of reading and education, you know, at any rate, I digress, but, um, uh, but, but we, you know, we believed as a nation that education was the key to having the talent to to create the kinds of citizens that we wanted. And if there's anything that we should be doing right now, it's making sure that in those years from zero to five, families are able to access the kind of care, both childcare and the early education that they that that we need them to have so that they are those future citizens and high quality employees our economy depends on it and it is um it's a little terrifying to me when you look at what's happening out there across the states with budget cutbacks and with so many families struggling with this you know while I sort of earlier said that there's been a lot of forward momentum we need a lot more um because it's imperative it's imperative uh we have time for one last question uh so here it is it's a really hard one, actually, I think. We started this conversation by talking about um, how traditional or stereotypical notions of like the 1950s family essentially inhibited the creation of um, a network of childcare centers, right? 
it seems like there are still some persistent cultural norms that are a barrier or that act as barriers um, to implementing some of these work-life policies that you recommend. Um, so like I, I think of some modern trends, right? Um, one is that uh, even in households where women make more money or work longer hours, they also still do more of the housework, right? Men are still stigmatized and in some cases penalized for taking paternity leave. In college, women are, of course, graduating at a, at a much higher rate than men. I think it's now six to four, right? But also within college trends, you see that uh, women have made some progress in studying majors that traditionally were uh, dominated by men. Men have not made as much progress in beginning to study majors that um, traditionally were dominated by women, right? And in terms of the jobs of the future, especially in healthcare and education, those are jobs that women have traditionally occupied and men don't seem to be moving into those jobs, right? They don't pay as much. And they don't pay as much. It's just a right? detail. No, yeah. no, of course. No, and, <laughs> and, and, and a big one. Over, right? Won't they need to take those jobs? They probably yeah. will. Um, and my gut is that over, I mean, but they don't, they don't, why would you go into, if you could choose two jobs and one has a lot of why women, you still have one, the right? optionality. I, yeah. I guess, so the, the, the final thing I would, I would note is like the decline in manufacturing jobs, the rise in populist sentiment, which is often um, associated with like a very kind of masculine sense of of deterioration, right? Of not uh, of not having the options that they had in the past. Um, it seems like we're going to have to overcome these really well and deeply entrenched gender norms um, in order to get to a place where all of these work life ideas are embraced by everybody. Therein lies the challenge. You know, uh, it's been fascinating to watch this election cycle because I see everything that you just said playing out in real time for the American public to to weigh in on. You've got one candidate that is talking a lot about these issues. Um, she is, is uh, focused on sort of the family side and a lot of other things, but is kind of elevating this piece of it and gender equity. And you've got another candidate who is explicitly not focused on gender equity and is um, focusing on the uh, make America, the even the idea that we're going to make America great again, this idea of hearkening back. I think a lot of people are like, well, but back then when it was so-called great, women didn't work, people of color didn't have rights that they do today. I mean, that wasn't, that was only great for some people. And so it's, it's very, it's kind of confusing to the rest of us, like, well, great for whom and what are you talking about? But I think it is that nostalgia. So I, I see your questions playing out each and every day. What I find very hopeful is that um, you see uh, in in so many surveys that have come across my desk, majorities of men saying that these kinds of issues are important to them. And when I say these kinds of issues, I mean control over their time and ability to spend time with their family and to do things that they want with their life. You also see men in a number of surveys now reporting more work-life conflict than women do. And that, I think, is a remarkable statistic combined with the fact, as you've said, that most surveys also show that women still continue to do the majority of the care and housework. So you've got men who are stepping up and who are like, whoa, this is kind of stressful. Um, and, you know, and I think that that, I mean, that's that's a, that's a moment of education, right? Um, I'm not a big believer that you need to create a crisis to have a solution, but I think this is one place where we've there is these crises going on in American families. 
every day. And men are just as engaged and just as um, the, the solving this is just as important to the men in real families all across America. And the things that you're talking about are sort of up here, I feel like in the in the political discourse, they might be in the media. But I think once you sort of go a level down, what you see are real families struggling. You see men who love their families and their their kids and their, and their aging parents just as much as the women do and are trying to figure out how to make this work. You also see in working class families, men are more likely to be taking up that burden of care than they are in more elite families. So there's a lot of opportunity there. And then on that issue about men being stigmatized, I think that is a really important place that policy has to play a role. Um, One of the best things that we did with the Family Medical Leave Act, although it's unpaid leave, it is gender neutral. Men and women have access to the exact same amount of leave. And in the four states that have implemented paid family leave, California, New Jersey, Rhode Island, and now New York State as of like a month or two ago, um, that leave is also gender neutral. So men have just as much access to it as do women. And you see that that when you have a policy like that, that gives men that opportunity, it creates um, – uh, a demand that can push back against the, the 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 penalties that they get in the workplace as more men do it. So I'm optimistic. I'm generally optimistic too uh, that we're going to get past these deeply entrenched norms. Right? Uh, it does seem like it's a generational shift, though, and not something that's going to happen overnight. I agree. As much as we may hope. Indeed. Uh, Heather Boucher, Executive Director and Chief Economist of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Before we let you go, Heather, uh, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners? Well, so I'm halfway through this book by Rana Faruhar called Makers and Takers that I'm finding super fascinating. I have so many questions for her. As an economist, I read a lot of economics, and it is amazing to me when I see a journalist take up these really complicated economic issues and make it into a page-turner. Of course, as a researcher, I have like, you know, on every page, I've got all these questions. I want to know more. But I think in terms of giving this big picture, she's done a lovely, a lovely job at that. Thanks for coming in. Thank this you. This has been great. And that is the end of the interview portion of today's show. Mary, before we close out, it's time to do our own long form recommendations. What do you got? So I stayed up yesterday, too late, illustrating the lack of work-life balance, reading Bethany McLean's Valiant piece in Vanity Fair. Um, and it was awesome. It's a really great in-depth primer on what went down. There are a lot of nuances and a lot of personalities. It was it was just very dramatic. And Bethany is masterful at storytelling and, and projecting, you know, the importance of everything, the stakes. She actually calls it Valiant was the pure expression of the view that companies are there to make money for shareholders, every other consideration be damned. She quotes one investor saying that it's the dark side of capitalism, and I think it's just a really masterful um, weaving together of all of the all of the things that have happened. Should note that Bethany McLean was the first mainstream reporter to raise questions about Enron, low those many years ago. She's a formidable reporter, indeed. Yeah. Okay, mine is a new column by Adam Davidson about Donald Trump, and specifically about Donald Trump's record as a businessman, which it turns out, surprise, surprise, is pretty awful. And yet it turns out that his awfulness as a businessman in a way makes his run for president this year all the more impressive because it suggests that he is that good at being a total charlatan, right? He has managed to convince a huge swath of the population that he's a genius businessman. In other words, he might have been better off as an actor. 
than as a politician. So his greatest success to date is this, is this presidential run. I don't know if that's his greatest success. Okay. I think I think also portraying a genius businessman on The Apprentice, right? That was also because very successful. it did have a good run, whereas this one might end in a shambles. You know, we have yet to see. We yeah. have yet to see. Uh, Mary, that is the end of today's show. Are you having as much fun uh, hosting this as we are having you host? This has been so fun and such an honor. So thank you. Oh, please! Now that's just going too far. An I'm honor? Being serious? Oh, come on. Because now I have to say, like, well, no, we're honored to have you. And then you have to say, well, no. No, no I'm, 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 I'm honored. honored it's the honor is Who's mine. Who's more honored, right? Actually, we should both be the most honored. Because we're, we're, honored. Here, we're here in the presence of Amy Keene, editor and producer extraordinaire. Everybody, you can get a hold of us and give us feedback at 917-551-5012. That is a U.S. number country code plus one. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. On Twitter, I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Mary is at M like Mary, D like Dryden, C like Child. Rank the show. Leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find us. Thanks again to Amy, producer and editor, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.